We are in Advent, it's Advent season, so we are preparing our hearts for the coming of the Lord, uh, the, the mystery of the Incarnation on Christmas Day. And so last, the first week of Advent, we talked about who it was that came, the incarnate God, the preexistent second person of the Trinity. Last week, we talked about the human side, who it was that God voluntarily attached himself to the sinfulness and the mess of mankind in the world. Uh, and this week, we're going to look at the actual incarnation itself, or as, about as close as we can get to it. This is an account, or as close as we get to the actual events, uh, in the Annunciation by the angel Gabriel to the Blessed Virgin Mary. So would you please stand as we hear God's word. This is from Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26. This is God's inerrant word. And in the sixth month... The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son and is in the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the amazing mystery that it teaches us about how you came to earth to be with us and among us, uh, how you promised it from before the ages, Lord, how you planned it from before the ages, and how you brought it to, about, to be in the incarnation, Lord. And we pray that you would help us to comprehend all that you would say in, in your word. Lord, give us minds to comprehend and hearts to obey your perfect word as you beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Last week we talked about legends and myth. The legend of the good king who comes to save his people is literally older than time. The most famous example of this is the King Arthur saga. King Arthur was a 6th century British king, supposedly, who saved Britain from both natural and supernatural enemies uh, before being mortally wounded during his defeat of his mortal enemy Mordred. And then he was carried away to the mystical island of Avalon for his mortal wounds to be healed, where he then entered into eternity. (laughs) Sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? 
There's all kind of scholarly debate about the reality of King, of King Arthur and when it happened and what was, what's real and what's not real and what we know and what we don't know. But what, what we do know, what we know as Christians, is that this story goes a lot farther back. The story actually goes much farther back. Its roots going all the way back to at least 1000 BC to King David and to the promise that God made to him. And so the big idea, the thesis, what we're going to talk about today, the one main idea that this passage wants to get through to us is this. Because the incarnation is the beginning of God's promise of a new creation, we can have confident hope that he will complete it. Because the incarnation is the beginning of God's promise of a new creation, we can have confident hope that he will create it. Let's break that down one part at a time. The incarnation is the beginning of God's promise. Look at verse 30. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, is announcing to Mary the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. The promise of the Messiah, which she, along with everyone else in Israel, every little girl in Israel, would have known and been intimately familiar with with this promise that God had made to King David a thousand years before. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes this promise to David. Listen to the language. He says, I will raise up your offspring after you, your seed after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And here Gabriel's using all that same language would have brought to Mary's mind immediately what he was talking about. Mary understands exactly what he's saying. She is going to be the mother of the long-awaited Messiah, the King of Israel, the hope of Israel, what everybody's been waiting for, this angel is announcing to her. But there's more more to the story than just that. But without a, a, a solid understanding, without a good understanding of how the covenants work, the Bible is very confusing. It's very, it seems like there's all these parts and pieces that don't really fit together. But when we get a good understanding of how the covenants work, what the covenants are and how they work together, the Bible becomes a lot more understandable. There are two covenants that form the backbone of the Bible. They are the structure, the spine, the trunk of the Bible, which all, then all the branches and leaves all connect to. Two covenants. The first covenant is called a covenant of works. And the requirement of that covenant is perfect obedience to the law every day of your life. That's what Adam was under in the garden. That's what Sinai brought to the people of Israel. But there was another covenant, also a covenant of grace. And the the requirement of the covenant of grace is to have faith in God's promise. That covenant was also made to Adam and Eve right after the fall. It was reiterated to Abraham when he promised that through his seed all all the nations would be blessed. Um, and the requirement of that is just, is, just a pro, is just faith 
in God's promise, faith that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. And they're related together in this way. Here's how they're related together. And if you understand this simple point, you will understand a huge chunk of Bible right here. This is how the two covenants are related together. Jesus completes or fulfills all the requirements of the covenant of works so that God then can graciously give us the covenant of grace and salvation by faith. Jesus does the work, we receive the grace, and we're saved by what Jesus has done. And so that's how they work together. There's a works element, there's grace, there's law, there's gospel. And understanding how those two work together helps us to understand rightly what the Bible is talking about. And so what is so special then about the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made to David specifically, which this is a fulfillment of, to understand what's special about this Davidic covenant, we need to look back a little bit to Sinai, to the judges, to the first era of Israel as a nation. The covenant was given to Israel as God's son, and the requirement was that everyone in Israel keep the law. Everyone had to keep the law, and they all failed. The Old Testament is this long story of God's people failing and failing and failing to keep the law. And then when the Davidic covenant comes now, a thousand years past or 1,500 years past that time, the covenant narrows a bit and it becomes a little more specific. And the king then is described as God's son. And God's son, the king, is highlighted as the one who is to keep the law to be a blessing to God's people. There's a narrowing where the king is now highlighted as he's the one who is going to keep the covenant of works uh, and win the salvation of his people. And then, of course, you know the history. Israel's kings after David, it was Solomon. He was kind of okay, but then he got fell, and then the kings were bad, bad, bad. Little blink of hope, bad, 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 worse. Little, little beacon of hope. But the Old Testament ends with the offspring of David, his seed. No one has fulfilled the law and blessed the people. It ends in dismay. It ends in despair, It ends in where is our hope? And then finally, eventually, what happens here is the fulfillment of that long-standing promise. Jesus comes and he is the king who then is the only one who is able to perfectly keep God's law and then bless his people and save his people. And so what that means for us, when we look at this, is that the incarnation is the fulfillment of, of the promised king who obeys God's law for us. Jesus is the, is, the, is the fulfillment of all those promises in the Old Testament. He is the one who comes and saves us from ourselves, really. And that's why we rejoice. We don't rejoice um, because Jesus made it possible for you to have eternal life as long as you don't mess up too bad. Because that's not good news if you really think about it. No, that's not good news for me. The good news is that Jesus won our salvation for us by his obedience to the law as the great king of Israel, something theologians call the active obedience of Christ. He died to pay for our sins. He suffered his passive obedience and throughout his life, but he also perfectly kept the law for us 
as our champion, as our king, and that's why we rejoice, because our salvation has been won for us by Jesus. The king has won our freedom, but there's even actually a little bit more to the story than that. Second part. The incarnation is the beginning of God's promise, part one. Part two, it is the beginning of God's promise of a new creation. Look at verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. In the Arthurian legends, it's the mystical island of Avalon that represents the promise of a new and a perfect world. And every culture has something like this. Every culture has this remnant, this vestige hope, this dimly remembered hope in the back of our minds of a perfect, the promise of a perfect and blessed world, a restored world where we're free from the misery of sickness and poverty and death and war and famine and strife and heartbreak and pain and everything that this world is characterized by. And this passage tells us that the very, very, very beginning of that world, not the myth, but the reality, the incarnation is the very beginning of the new creation. What do I mean by that? What we're talking about here is the Christian doctrine of the virgin birth which is a big problem for you if, if you're a rationalist, materialist, if you're a person who believes there's no such thing as the supernatural world. Uh, it's a big problem. But as Christians, this shouldn't be a problem for us, right? I mean, if you believe Genesis 1-1, it's pretty much downhill from there as far as miracles and supernatural works go. All kind of debate about how the virgin birth works and what took place. There's a whole lot we don't know about the virgin birth. There's a hot debate about the mode of the transmission of Adam's sin throughout his descendants. Uh, I think that we would say there's, there's more clarity about how that guilt is, is applied or how that guilt is imputed to people by God. But the actual corruption of the flesh, there's a hot debate about how that actually happens. But what we do know, what we do know about the virgin birth is something fantastic. And that is that it was a direct creative act of God. The word overshadowed. Probably the most important word in this section of the text it's a word that's used, it's, 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 it's really a word that means, to sh- it really means shadow or something comes in, betwe- in between the sun or the source of light and casts its shadow over something. But because of that idea of shadow and casting, it was also associated in the Old Testament with, with the Shekinah glory of the Lord. When the glory of the Lord would fill the temple, it was called the Shekinah, or they called it was overshadowing in the temple, meaning that God's presence and power was active in that place. But this also brings our mind back, this overshadowing of Mary also brings our mind back to the original creation account in Genesis, the one where the Spirit of God hovers over the water as an active and powerful presence, creating life out of nothing. Um, 
in the Genesis account, God creates new life by the power of his word out of nothing. And then from that point forward, life then becomes derivative. It becomes derivative from its ancestor. Life begets life begets life. And that's how it went all the way down throughout history. Everyone who was born of Adam was connected to Adam in such a way that the corruption of him, his corruption, the corruption of our flesh spread through the race so that we were hopeless and dying. But in the incarnation, God steps back in and produces a brand new creative act. And that is what's so special about this. Mary's egg, probably, maybe, maybe not. We're not sure. It doesn't say. But it talks about Mary's egg, maybe not. But some point in the past, the big point is that 2,000 years ago, inside Mary's womb, there was a human embryogenesis, a splitting of two cells, And that microscopic, tiny life then became the very beginning of a whole new creation. That's the big deal. That's the big deal. Jesus in his humanity is then called the firstborn of the creation, of the new creation. And in our union with him, in our spiritual union with him, we are connected to life through the power of the Spirit, salvation is the, is, the, is the act where God takes us out of our biological connectedness with Adam and our culpability and the transmission of the corruption of his sin throughout the human race and transfers us into an entirely new family tree based on Jesus and his perfection held together not by biological corruption and the spread of sin, but by the power of the spirit, of Jesus' spirit flowing out of him from the heavenlies and connecting us all together. It is a bond that is stronger than death. You've heard the saying that blood is thicker than water, and that's true, but what this is telling us is that spirit is thicker than blood and that we belong to Jesus. So let's think about that for just a minute. At some point in the past, 2,000 years ago, there was nothing, there was the dying world. Everyone was descended from Adam. Everyone was dying. And then two tiny microscopic cells formed and at that time they were the entirety of the new creation. It's pretty cool when you think about it like that. That was it. Two little tiny cells. Think about how fragile. Think about how vulnerable that was. How it appears to be so weak. But it wasn't. I mean now as we look just 2,000 years from then Now the new creation consists of roughly two billion people on the planet now, plus billions who have gone before us into the heavenlies. The majority of the church is probably in heaven. Our people aren't here on earth. Our people are in the supernatural realm. That's who we are. That's who we belong to, and that's where we are going. Um, And it's growing. It continues to grow from that tiny little speck of hope in Mary's womb, it has grown to be the church now and is continuing to grow and blow up 
in China and in Africa. We may look at here in the West and think, oh, the church is dying, and maybe it is. But that's not the story worldwide. There are more people per capita now that are Christian than were in, in the last century and the century before that. And if you look at the stats, even in the worst part of persecution against the church and in biblical criticizing the Bible and doubt against the Bible, if you look at the capita, per capita, Christians per world uh, population, it wasn't even a dip. It stayed flatlined for a little bit towards the early 19th century, but it just keeps going up. No matter what they throw at us, the church continues to grow because it's fueled by God's power and it is fueled by the Spirit and it will not be defeated. So don't believe the hype. And so what do we see in that? We see that even though sometimes we may feel like the kingdom of God is weak because it appears weak and the world's standards, the truth is that it is fantastically strong. It is strong by the power of the Spirit and it is growing and it is unstoppable. But we also see in this the perfect timing of what uh, Trish Warren Harrison calls the unhurried God. <laughs> I'm reading this book, Liturgy of the Ordinary. I, know it's, I always know I'm reading a good book when it ends up in all my sermons and, and all my messages for a week or two weeks or three weeks. But there's a fantastic book. There's a part in it when she talks about the unhurried God and how God takes his time to do what he's going to do. And oftentimes that just doesn't line up with our timing. And we think, oh my gosh, nothing's, gonna, nothing's happening here. You know, there may be something in your life right now, probably in all of our lives, there's something that we wish was a little farther along than it was. Or something that looked a little stronger by worldly standards than it is. And what this teaches us is that God is in perfect control, even in the, what appears to be weakness, there is amazing strength. And that we can trust God to bring about what he's going to bring about in our personal lives, in the church, in the world, in his perfect and unhurried timing. And when we step back and we look at the big picture, we can say, wow, it's growing, it is beautiful, it's glorifying God, and we can relax. We can let go of our anxiety. So point one. The incarnation is the beginning of God's promise. Point two, the beginning of God's promise of a new creation. Point three, we can have confident hope that he will complete it. Look at verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son and in this in, in, this, in the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. As I was meditating on this this week, the thought struck me, as it often does, how much how much of our anxiety and fear in life can be traced back to the fear that God's not going to come through. And I mean traced back in the sense that every fear that we have, you can usually trace it back to an underlying fear. And if you trace those fears back far enough, you can find that you have 
a small group of core fears that basically run your life <laughs> if you look hard enough. And I wonder how many of us would share the fear that God is not going to come through, which actually means, if you think about it, what we're afraid of is that God's not going to come through according to my will. God is not going to do what I want him to do on my time schedule. But what this passage teaches us probably more than anything is that, is that God already has come through. He has come through for us in a bigger and more beautiful way than we could ever expect or hope. And we can know <clears throat> that because he has come through with the beginning of his promise to bring us eventually to Avalon, to the heavenly realms, that he will come through with the promise to get us there. Elizabeth, her cousin Elizabeth, is given to Mary as a sign, as a sign of God's power to comfort and to assure Mary. If you look at Luke chapter 1, there's a, there's a, a comparison of stories. There's, there's two stories of birth announcements, one to John the Baptist, with, uh, one to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father in the high temple of Jerusalem, and then another one to Mary in this lowly village in Galilee. And one of the things um, in, the, in, the, in the narratives that are contrasted is that Zechariah responds to the announce, announcement by the angel by saying, give me a sign so I know that, you, that this is true, which is kind of implying doubt. And the angel says, no sign for you. You will be deaf until the birth of your son. But Mary, Mary asks, how will this happen? Meaning, I believe it's going to happen. I just I would like to know how because I'm not married yet. It implies faith. And so a sign is given to her and the sign that the angel gives to her is your cousin Elizabeth, who is barren, is about to bear a son. Which brings our minds back to all the barren women in the Old Testament. To Sarah, to Rebecca, to Rachel, to Hannah to the mother of Samson, to the Shumanite widow, and now to Elizabeth. God is always, throughout the Old Testament, he's using barren women to come through at the last minute with, with his promise. And, and it tells us, it shows us, that God delights in the brilliant last-minute supernatural save. And so do we. I mean, we love that. That's why we love books that's why we love movies that are amazing. At the last minute, every, something, you think everything is ruined. At the last minute, it comes through. But God does this not just because it's exciting, although it is, but he does it for our good because it puts his power on display for one, which glorifies himself. But he also then invites us into that power and it forces us in such a way to trust in his power instead of our own. Which is really the work of sanctification on our part, isn't it? I mean, that's, a, that's almost it in a sentence. Our big problem in life is that we trust ourselves more than we trust the Almighty God. <laughs> Which is really silly when you just say it like that, but that's what we do. You see, the Christian life is not about powerlessness. It's not about a lack of power. It's about a different kind of power. It is about 
recognizing our very limited power in ourselves, but it is more about coming online and realizing and recognizing God's unlimited power that he has for us. Of course, the trick of it is that you then have to let go of controlling outcomes. You have to let go of how you want things to turn out, making things be the way you want them to be, which if we think about that hard enough, that's actually a good thing. It means that we have to trust God to bring his perfect outcome in any situation. You know, and the problem is we can't see the future. We can't force our wills upon it. When we try to, it means frustration. But what God is teaching us in this, when, when the angel Gabriel says to Mary, nothing with God is impossible. He's trying to tell us that although we may be powerless in and of ourselves, that the Christian life is really about power. It's about operating in the power of the Spirit in the here and now and trusting the one who can see the future, trusting in the one who can make his will happen in the future for his glory and for our good, making his perfect will come to fruition instead of our imperfect will. And so, it's really about and what God is teaching us, trying to teach us, is that we should trust him. You know, the incarnation, the incarnation of God and then the subsequent crucifixion for us and for our salvation, it forever puts the rest the question of, is God good? Is God powerful and is God good? Can he be both of those things together? The incarnation to come and be with us and to suffer with us, to eventually be murdered by his own creation, forever puts the rest the question of whether or not God is good. And so the question isn't, is God good? The question becomes, do you trust him more than you trust yourself? Are we going to trust the omnipotent, all-powerful, all-seeing, perfect God more than we trust our own desires, more than we trust our own wants, more than we trust how we want our life to go in every area of our life? And in conclusion to all this, Mary really gives us the perfect example of this kind of faith. Now, Mary was... Special, and Mary's also very regular. You know, she was special in the fact that she was God's chosen woman. She was the object of God's favor. Favored one there in verse 28 is a passive verb, meaning that grace is something that Mary received from God, not something that Mary is able to dispense to us. Mary was the object of God's grace and mercy and favor in this. And so she's special. She bore, she was the mother of our Lord. But she was also very regular in that she was a nobody. She was a poor girl from a poor family. She was not rich. She was not famous. She was from a little town in the middle of nowhere. Luke mentions that Nazareth is in Galilee because he assumes that no one's going to know, even if I've heard of it before, know where it is. And can you imagine 
how frightened she must have been by all this. This Probably 13 to 15 year old girl. You know, I was thinking about that this week. Thinking about girls in our congregation that I know that are that age. To have this put on them, right? There's two sides to this. On the one side, Gabriel's telling her that you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. And what, what girl in Israel didn't dream of that? What girl in Israel wouldn't have been astonished by the fact that this angel is coming and telling her that you are going to be the mother of the long-awaited king? The honor and the glory that would have go along with that. But, but he says the way that this is going to happen, everyone's going to think that you're sexually immoral and that your child was born out of wedlock. You're going to be a social pariah for most of your life. In that culture, you didn't have babies out of wedlock. It was a potential capital offense. And even if it wasn't, if your community and your husband was gracious to you, it made you a social outcast. You made you look down on. When Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees in John chapter 8, they say to him, we were not born of sexual immorality, meaning that they had heard the stories, which meant that everybody in Israel had by that time heard the story, meaning that definitely in Mary's hometown, they knew what was up, and everybody thought that Mary was a sexually immoral woman. She was a pariah. She was an outcast in at least some way, and she suffered for that. And she, Mary, is always presented to us as this very thoughtful girl. She knew exactly what that meant. She knew exactly what Gabriel was calling her to, calling her to do. Yes, Mary, the promise is great. Beyond anything that you've ever dreamed, that suffering comes first. The night will be full of tears, but the morning will be rejoicing beyond your wildest dreams. And so Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. She gets it right. She says, I trust you more than I trust me. And isn't that the way it is for everybody? Isn't that how it is for all of us? And isn't that how the promise works? In this world, we suffer. You suffer. You will have heartache and pain. People will hurt you in ways that will scar your soul to which you will not recover from in this life. And you will carry that pain with you and that suffering with you to the day you die. But the promise is greater still. The promise is that the morning will come and that the bond that we have with Christ and the power of the Spirit is a bond that is stronger than death and God promises. He promises that He will bring us to Avalon that our mortal wounds will be healed and that we will be with him forever. The incarnation means that God has begun his promise of a new creation and because we know that he has started it, we can have confident hope that he will complete it. Amen? Amen. Father, as we approach the table, we pray that you would help us to see these beautiful things 
or the big difference between Arthur and Jesus is that the Jesus was predicted in the prophets thousands of years before he came with stunning accuracy. And that you gave us eyewitness accounts of his coming, of his ministry, of his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven so that we might know, Lord, that your promise is good, that you did fulfill what you promised Knowing that you fulfilled your promises in the past, Lord, we can have good confidence. We can have great confidence, confident hope that you will fulfill the promises yet to be made, Lord. Although we suffer in this world, and all this world is hard, Lord, we know uh, that you will bring your promise to completion and bring us home with you, Lord. And so in the meantime, we ask Knowing your promise is good, knowing what our future is, we pray that you would help us to be people who trust you more than we trust ourselves. And we pray that you would, we would be people, Lord, that your power works in and through, and that we would be blessing, and that we would be light in the world that you have called us to witness to. And we praise you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.